0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am Director of ECFR and I'm very happy to be presenting a double issue of this podcast. We're... Going to be looking from Vienna at the first half at the fascinating events that have been taking place in Austria, with the recent resignation of the chancellor, and the presidential election, which the far right uh, FPÖ, the Austrian Freedom Party, is uh, the favourite to win. And in the second half of the podcast, we will. Be going back to the British referendum campaign, and we'll be talking to Douglas Alexander, the former Labour minister who ran a number of Labour Party election campaigns, but also was one of the leading uh, organisers of the campaign against Scottish independence last year. Um, who will be talking about some of the parallels between the Scottish referendum and the UK referendum? But first up. Uh, here from Vienna, I'm joined by two very special guests. Um, uh, Burkhard Bischoff, who is the op-ed editor of the uh, die, die, die Presse, which is one of the top newspapers in Austria. And secondly by Caroline de Reiter, who is a journalist from the Dutch newspaper NRC Handelsblatt and uh, is also a visiting fellow with Carnegie Endowment for International Politics and is a council member of ECFR. So, Booker, why don't you start? Tell us what's happening in your country.
1: No, of course, the, the two uh, things are interrelated. I, m- I mean, the uh, first round of the presidential election where the uh, candidate of the. Uh, of the uh, as we say Blue Party, that means the FPÖ, the Freedom Party, uh, came out very strong and and, uh, the second uh, event, uh, that means uh, uh, the uh, demission of the the Chancellor this week, they are interrelated. They are interrelated because uh, uh, the the two traditional parties in this country meaning the Social Democratic Party and the People's Party, the Conservative People's Party in in that first round of the uh, of the presidential elections uh, were, were were really uh, were really cut down to uh, uh, to a few numbers both had r- around eleven percent uh, whereas the candidate of the freedom party had uh, around thirty five percent That means that uh, what we see also in os- other European countries that the traditional parties are in a terrible crisis and uh, the effect of, the, of, of this was that uh, uh, the, the pressure in the Social Democratic Party against the Chancellor, uh, Werner Feynman, uh, uh, after he had lost around I think, 13 elections in the last eight years, was so strong that he had uh, that he had to go, uh, and he, he did it himself, uh, so these two these two uh, events are uh, interrelated
0: and how much Caroline has that got to do with the refugee crisis, the breakdown of their traditional parties, and the surge of the the FPU?
2: Um I think it could have been any crisis undoing um the establishment here. And I don't think it's just an Austrian story. I think it's very much a European story. In fact, I've been living here for two and a half years now. I hardly ever write about Austria because it's very Austrian, all these stories and nobody really cares, but I don't in, in, in any case. Um, but now all of a sudden I start writing more about Austria because I think these are very European themes or maybe even global themes. Uh, What you see, in my view, is a a political class that has long ago ceased to be political. They are just trying to manage the situation. They have, just like anybody else in Europe, uh, they have globalized much of the economy. And uh, then things happen. We had the banking crisis. We had all these, this uh, um, could have undone uh, this government too. Um, and um, they don't have any political vision. They don't have a po- really political response. People don't or hardly vote anymore because they don't see that they have any choice between, you know, mainstream left wing or right wing. And um, and then all of a sudden you have, like in my country in the Netherlands, or you have it now with UKIP in uh, in, in the UK. Uh, you have protest parties coming up challenging that sort of non order, that, that sort of you know political management, as I call it. And they have ideas, and in my view, they won't work, but you know it's it sounds nice. It is a sort of a vision. Close the borders, uh, stop this globalization issue. So you used to have left and right against each other with ideas, and now you have people who want, open societies against people who want closed societies.
0: So, Borka, can you tell us a bit more about the FPU as a party? Because it has,
2: um, Mm.
0: obviously, uh, through York Haider, left an impression on uh, other European countries and is kind of associated with quite far-right history. The leader, uh, the, the candidate for president, in fact, only within the last few days was quoted as saying that the 8th of May was a, was a sad day, the end of the the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the German surrender, uh, which is a very un-Austrian way of, of talking about these things because Austria normally likes to present itself as a, a victim of German imperialism rather than um, uh, <laughs> mourning the, the loss of the Second World War. Um, but is he a is he a kind of neo-Nazi far-right candidate, or is he a different kind of politician?
1: No, I right, right, right. you, you mean Mr. Strache now, who is the well, uh, both Mr. Strache,
0: uh, but also the the um, the for the, yeah. the candidate for uh, president?
1: Let me first let me first uh, mm-hmm. agree to my colleague because I think it, it, it brings in the broader picture. The broader picture is oh. that you have now worldwide a revolt. Against status quo worldwide, you have it in the United States with Trump. you had it uh, two days ago in the Philippines with the uh, election of of, of, of of this very strange uh, candidate. You have it here in Europe all over uh, that is the first it is a revolt against status quo, a revolt against traditional uh, parties That is the first thing. Uh, the question you ask me is this uh, Whatever you call it, neo-Nazi party or old Nazi party, uh, I, I, no, I don't think so. Uh, and I also I, I don't think that uh, the 35 uh, percent or the mass of the or, or the or the majority of the 35 percent who voted for Hover in the first round are are all Nazis. No, they are not. They are uh, again at this. Uh, Come, it brings me to to my point uh, about the revolt against the status quo. They are voters who are against the traditional uh, the, the traditional politics as as we had it now. Uh, and, and again, this is not an Austrian uh, phenomenon. It's a phenomenon phenomenon you have all over Europe. You have all over the world. So it's
0: against. Um, globalization against Europe, yes, against refugees, against, against and, and big and business, against banks, against, against uh, journalists, against journalists, against
1: again again. I agree. Agreed to my colleague. Uh, what what you see also in Austria, you see it. All, you see also in in, in France or or, or with uh, uh, Wilders in, in in the in the Netherlands or or with other they are against something. Yeah. They are, the, their politics is to be against something. But you don't have a politics which is in favour of something. Yeah. They don't present solutions to the problems. Yeah. What what they do is saying, we are against this, we are against stop this, we are against we this, stop off. the world, but you, 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 you don't see real solutions for the problems. But one of the things, you mentioned France
0: there, one of the things which... Um, some of our, my French friends are saying is you know in France when Le Pen got through to the second round of the presidential mm-hmm. election the whole of the rest of the country came together to block them also most recently in the parliamentary elections um, you saw the same dynamic where
2: the other parties
0: came together to keep out the, the far right but here that doesn't seem to be
1: happening it, it why? Is why a, is that? Is it because
0: it's not as important a job being president of Austria as being president of no, France? or...?
1: Uh, 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 how, how to put it? For, for, uh, from how I see it, you have in this country many conservatives who who, who simply would not would not would not uh, take the possibility or would, would not would not be able to vote for a green. Uh, for a Green Party member, uh, you have in the in the conservative uh, element, and after all, this country in the majority is conservative. Uh, yeah. If, yeah. If you if you put together Greens and, and Socialists now, they may be they may be around. Uh, if it's, if it's a lot, forty percent. Uh, yeah. The sixty percent of the country is conservative. Uh, yeah. The majority is conservative, and and a uh, uh, segment of this con- conservative. Uh, population segment will not vote for a green, for, for a green candidate, yeah? and, and and therefore I think if, if, if you see uh, Mr. van der Beelen had 20% in the this first the round, uh, this is a yeah. green candidate, Mr. Hofer had 35 candidates, yeah. so one needs 30% to get the 50%, the other one needs only 50, 15%, yeah? Yeah. and he and, as as the mood in the population is now, he will get it he will get it quite easily That's
2: interesting because then till now we had the so-called illiberal governments in in the European Union and we could then say yes, these were people who were behind the Iron Curtain for a long time these are, you know, their uh, experience with democracies, maybe not as refined as ours and so on but if this, if if this will happens in Austria, it could, I mean, the president doesn't have all the power, but you can see that this will get a, an influence on yeah. who, will f- who, uh, who, you know, who will form the next government. And he, he, can, he can call early elections if he wants, he can uh, send home the government. You can see a totally different dynamics, an illiberal uh, or half illiberal uh, government Coming to Austria is the first. Yeah, in Austria they always say we're in Eastern Europe, but in our view, it's it still belongs to Western Europe.
1: Yeah. So
2: that will be sort of a dent in the wall, in my. Opinion. Uh, let's
1: uh, let's let. Uh, uh, maybe maybe, maybe we can agree on one point. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a question of, of Central Europe right yeah. because so, if you see yeah. if you see what happened in in Hungary if you see what happened especially in Poland huh? yeah. uh, if, if you see the in-between of Slovakia and Czech yeah. what what you see now in Austria may be uh, uh, um, Coming closer of Austria to this Visegrád group, yeah, which 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 is quite interesting. Yeah. So, so
0: Austria will become the the fifth member of the
1: Visegrád. Yeah, country. yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <could>. <laughs> we, will, we will see. Could. Could. Could, could, yeah, but yeah. so.
2: And this will change Europe. This will change the whole dynamics in Europe.
1: So we
0: talk. So you both are convinced that Hofer, the FPU candidate, is going to win the presidency. Yeah. And who's going to be the next prime minister then, if uh, if has is gone as is it is?
1: Very difficult to say. Very difficult to say because um, if it is true yeah, that the first round of the presidential election was uh, in, in uh, was mainly a vote against the, t- the two traditional governing parties, yeah, and they lost horrifying, yeah, mm-hmm. both together had twenty twenty one or twenty two percent, yeah, and. If this this motive is away in the second round, uh, uh, the the question is uh, whether this, uh, uh, this anger against the political elite and against the political class will also be directed against the next chancellor, which will be the uh, so you know, there'll the be a caretaking
2: you know, it, it because they're on the verge, apparently, of choosing another manager. And the managers are losing out. People who don't put forward ideas, even if they believe in Europe, they will not so defend if, it. What, what are the kind, names in the, the kind phrase?
0: Of, Do you want to say who, who... So they're talking about having a manager rather than a leader for they them? Yeah. two main
2: candidates who, in right. the can socialist party. The, yeah. Well, you know them better than I do, no, I guess, but, uh, but one is, manag- are, one is managing cool. the railways and another one is a media manager. The, man-
1: okay. the other one is… A, so what, what are their <laughs> names? The one is uh, Mr. Kern, who is yeah. a manager of the Austrian railway uh, system or railways, of the Austrian railways. The other one is uh, Mr. Tyler, who was uh, chief of the national TV and who, who is now for Working for Turner International. Uh, right, the so they're thing. both
0: sort of technocratic
1: candidates. Technocratic. Right? They're they're not they're they How old
0: are they? are they? Is it a generational mm. shift or is it still. Mm.
1: The one is around 60, the other one is younger, Mr. Kern is younger. Uh, what, uh, uh, Obviously, uh, all the all uh, most most of the uh, socialist party uh, organizations are in, in 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 favor of this manager of the right. railway system, uh, and and he might... He might, he might and what would the, his program be? I have no idea.
0: Because in waiting in the wings for the conservative party is is the the boy wonder of um, Austrian politics, Sebastian Kurz who is expected to take over the F the, the, the um
1: mm-hmm. The Austrian People's Party yeah, uh, at some stage. This is all media speculation. It can, it can be, it can, it cannot well, be. I think
2: it's a bit more no. than that. Yeah, we well, <laughs> but uh,
1: from what we hear, hear, hear Mr. Kurz is quite a clever young man, and he knows, uh, he knows very good if he is jumping too early in the whole game. He might also be. Yeah. Uh, um, mm. He Might peak too soon, uh, you, you know, like a here. Luftballon, uh, like a balloon. Yeah, he will, if, if, if he's <laughs> going to, an, he out, knows it, it. He's, he's quite clever man, so okay, he will see. Better.
0: Okay, so, um, that's uh, looks like it'll be turbulent time ahead. So, when finally, when are the next elections in Austria? Then, if um,
1: the normal normal date would be 2018, but uh, well, the, again, the media speculation is that it may be earlier.
0: So that the new president will move the date forward and that you could then yeah. and see the FPU in government as well as just having the presidency?
2: Or the government will sort of implode by itself because it, uh, it doesn't have a very uh, solid basis anymore, an huh? electoral basis. These
1: are turbulent times, so…
2: Turbulent times and bad leaders with no, with no vision and just plans, you Not know, only enough, sort so. of <laughs> marketing tricks to win votes.
0: Okay well we'll see what happens if you're both right about the elections yeah. and um, uh, we will come back and see if Austria is indeed becoming a full-time member of the awkward squad <laughs> along with the, the other Visegrad countries. Thank you very much you. To, to both of you. So for our second segment we're going to be talking to Douglas Alexander who is a former Labour politician he was the shadow foreign secretary in the last parliament for the labor party and uh, before that was uh, europe minister secretary of state for international development but also was the general election coordinator and the runner of, of how many labor election campaigns too many <laughs> as well as one of the intellectual uh, driving forces behind the the referendum in in scotland um so douglas um you have been thinking about some of the parallels between the EU referendum that we have now and the the Scottish referendum there's some which are pretty obvious in that there is a a campaign about um, identity and uh, the future of the country uh, lots of talk about project fear Um, but if you kind of take a step back from it what do you think the main lessons for this referendum are from the Scottish one? I think
3: the parallels can be overdrawn because there were some features of the Scottish referendum in 2014 that were literally unprecedented and I doubt we'll see replicated again anytime soon um, we had the highest turnout turnout of 84.6 percent since the establishment of universal suffrage in the United Kingdom and my sense with some weeks to go is we're unlikely to see that replicated this time around in the Brexit referendum but I do think there are Uh, insights and lessons that are actually relevant to where we find ourselves uh, with a critical number of days to go before Britain's choice. Firstly, I would set aside the kind of horse race polling numbers that fill our newspapers on a daily basis. Uh, The lesson I draw from Scotland is that at this stage in the campaign, psychology matters much more than sophology. And by that I mean there's a classic battle between both sides of this referendum campaign, as there was in Scotland, to establish the defining question in voters' minds for the eve of poll. And that's a much better guide, who's winning that battle of the frames than whether the latest snapshot of opinion is one point up or one point down. Secondly, in the closing stages of the campaign in Scotland, evidence undoubtedly mattered, but so too did emotion. What we saw in the closing weeks of the referendum campaign in Scotland was an avalanche of facts engulf the assertions of the nationalists, but also, An extraordinary, patriotic, impassioned, positive case made for the United Kingdom by Gordon Brown in his closing remarks. And I think in many ways those came together to explain the clear and decisive victory that was secured in the Scottish referendum. Because if you like, the emotion unlocked the willingness of people to embrace the evidence. So my hope is in the coming weeks we will see not just an economic case, powerful though that is, made by the Remain side but also a more overtly political case about Britain's place within the European Union, about what kind of country we are and what kind of country we want to be. The third lesson that I would draw from the Scottish experience is that in these critical days we need to build not just an argument but build a movement. There's no doubt that in modern marketing uh, the most precious commodity is a willingness of people to voluntarily share content and information with their friends through their social networks. And in that sense, there's a task for all of us who believe that it's important, Britain stays within the European Union, to take the opportunity both to talk to our friends, our neighbours, but also to engage in social media in making the case for Britain's place within Europe in the coming weeks. This is too important a task just to be left to the politicians. And I suppose the final observation, the final lesson I would draw from Scotland, is that referenda have an afterlife, and often they have an afterlife that aren't fully anticipated, even in the closing stages of the campaign. To give just one example, I have real doubt as to the capacity of the Conservative Party to quickly heal the wounds that we're seeing opening up on a daily basis in this referendum campaign with ease or with speed once this referendum is concluded. Certainly in Scotland, you saw profound changes opening up during the referendum that have continued to shape Scottish politics in the months and the years that follow. My sense is that the referendum on Britain's membership of Europe Won't exclusively be a choice about Britain's place in Europe,
0: but will actually help politics, help shape politics in Britain for years to come. So, can we um, maybe go into a bit more depth onto some of those things, and then also maybe think about some of the differences? So, on your first point about you know the 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 big struggle is not the horse race, but it's you know who's defining what the referendum's about, what the frame is. How would you um, see that? Is it about Because you've got these two slogans, Britain stronger in Europe, um, and uh, leave and take control. Is that the kind of main thing? Is it about strength versus control, or is it? I think it's more cost
3: versus control, actually, in the sense that, from what I've seen of the Remain argument, there's been a heavy focus on what would be the costs and consequences of leaving the European Union for individuals, for their families, for businesses, and for the economy. And my sense is that the Remain side are relatively comfortable, that if that's the defining question in people's minds, um, people who at the moment are characterised as undecided will actually break to voting for Remain. Yeah. Um, I think on the other uh, side of the ledger, um, the exit side has taken such a battering from received economic opinion over recent months that my instinct, although I have no inside information on this, that they will move more towards the identity immigration arguments um, and will try and make the defining question not of cost but of control in the closing stages of the campaign.
0: And how would you see that battle emerging? Because one of the criticisms in Scotland was, was of Project Fear and the Nationalists would kind of come out and say, oh, not another sort of scary thing. And, and um, one of the reactions to the Cameron speech uh, earlier th- uh, mm. this week was from uh David Davis who said, you know, they're going to be promised play, they're going to be talking about plagues of locusts and the slaughter of the firstborn next, um, uh. How much, how, you know, because obviously people did also say they hated all the fear stuff in Scotland, but it did get into their minds and made them kind of think well, about let's it. Let's
3: remember there was a clear and decisive victory yeah. for those of us who wanted to stay within the United Kingdom. Yeah. That's not a comfortable truth to acknowledge yeah. if you're a nationalist, but it yeah. was 10 clear points, yeah. a very clear and decisive victory. And of course, if you vested your whole political life in the... ...unique, exceptional brilliance of Scotland... ...and then, in its wisdom... ...the Scottish people, by a record turnout of 84.6%... ...make a clear and decisive judgement to stay part of the United Kingdom... ...that's psychologically quite hard. And so, you seek to say, well, that wasn't really the result... ...or you say that there were reasons that the result happened which weren't fair... ...and a lot of the post-match commentary in the Scottish referendum campaign... I think, have been people seeking to come to terms with what was actually a pretty
0: clear and decisive result. Now, so, the truth is... So you I don't think, think it's just like all negative campaigning, that people say they don't like well, it, but it doesn't it make them give about... It depends what about. you
3: characterise negative campaigning as. If you say it is somehow negative or illegitimate, to ask, what would be the currency in Independent Scotland? Yeah. Um, is it conceivably the oil price will ever fall below $113 a barrel? José Manuel Barroso, the president of the European Commission at the time, says that it's not automatic that Scotland would become a member of the European Union. I don't think those are illegitimate questions. I think they're reasonable questions to ask. Similarly, I think it's perfectly reasonable for Remain campaigners to say, well, you say you'd like to leave the European Union. What would be the nature of the relationship with the European Union going forward? Do you want to be Norway, where we pay the same or indeed more dues, but become a rule taker rather than a rule maker? where we accept free movement of labour as the obligation, as part of the European Economic Area, and um, what do you see the future? Do you see the future as being Switzerland? Do you see the future as being Canada? Um, those are not illegitimate, unfair questions. They're perfectly reasonable questions. And given the scale and significance of the choice that the country faces, I think it's important those questions continue to be asked. But I also think that that economic charge sheet needs to be matched by an impassioned, patriotic and principled case what kind of country we want to be, um, and why we see Britain as being at its best, as being outward-looking, internationalist, uh, comfortable with a leadership role within Europe, and part of an international rules-based order. Um, And that's a conversation I hope we hear more of, as well as the economic questions in the weeks ahead.
0: So that's the second kind of uh, parallel that you talked about, about the kind of importance of emotion. And it's quite interesting that the the way that people who are in favour of Remain like to make the case is about this is Great Britain versus Little England. But actually, mm. the interesting thing is that most people nowadays self-identify more as Scottish or English mm. or Welsh than they do as British. So it's not necessarily going to get their kind of emotions going. I mean, that was one of the problems with, no, with the, I, with the but Scottish listen, referendum. but I feel comfortable so more...
3: being Scottish, British and European.
0: Yeah. And we live in an era where plural identities yeah.
3: define many of us. And one of the reasons I was personally so committed to the case for Scotland within the United Kingdom was I didn't want Alex Salmon deciding whether I had to be Scottish and British or British and Scottish. Yeah. One of the glories of the uh, British Constitution and the United Kingdom over the centuries has been that as individuals we get to choose. Yeah. We can decide that we feel predominantly Scottish, we can decide we feel British, we can decide we feel European. And in that sense, I think that those of us who believe in the Remain case yeah. are offering a quintessentially modern and progressive vision of identity, so the where we don't ask people to choose between yeah.
0: being English, British or European. But where do you, where do you find this kind of emotional power? Because it is definitely true that there's more romance associated with the kind of talk about, um, you know, self-determination and... Um, a thousand years of history and those sorts of things which the, which the outers try and kind of own. I mean how do you infuse the, the, the Remain case with, uh, with that kind of emotional energy? Um,
3: I think that you can draw emotional power from the future as well as from the past Right. and there is of course a conception of British history which defines ourselves in defiance and in opposition to our neighbours um, where we stood alone in the Dunkirk spirit, of yeah. Battle of Britain, um, and proud though we are of that extraordinary fight against fascism, I think there's also idealism and lyricism associated with the world that's becoming, yeah. and the opportunities for our children and for our grandchildren to leave behind a politics defined predominantly by national identity and instead to recognise that strong though national identity will continue to be... um we live in an increasingly interdependent world in which the opportunity for our kids and for our grandkids will be to shape their own choices and shape their own identities in a way that was unimaginable for our parents and our grandparents
0: what about this idea of building a movement how do you build a movement in six weeks which is what we have now until the referendum
3: well i think one of the changes that the internet and social media has affected is the capacity for people to organize Uh, politically at speeds unimaginable uh, in the pre-internet age and you don't need to take my word for it look at much that was written at the time of um, the initial revolts across the Arab world the capacity for organization in those countries thanks to media like Facebook was unprecedented and in that sense it relies upon the motivation and the animation of a significant portion of the population the idea that politics is any longer a top-down vertical business rather than a horizontal interactive business I think is is wrong. You know We have the capacity, if enough of us are motivated, to be able to create that movement by talking to our friends and our family, engaging in social media. And
0: truthfully, social media mattered profoundly in the closing stages of the Scottish campaign. But there is a vertical element in this. I mean, in 1975, one of the big things that swung the campaign was the fact that a lot of people followed the politicians that they trusted the most and uh there was certainly a hope at the beginning of this referendum that um the fact that the party leaders of all the main parties were in favor of this would actually maybe bring people into the the fray but it now looks um you know a few weeks into the campaigning that most conservatives are probably going to vote to stay outside of the european union so how do you um motivate the rest of the country when, you know, it seems to be, you know, the two, a a, a battle between two Etonians, Boris versus Dave. How do do you get Labour people, how do you get non-Tories engaged and The idea that that.
3: we've seen the collapse of difference in British voting habits is not news to those of us who have been knocking on doors for 20 or 30 years. Um, And I welcome the fact that we've seen a collapse of difference in Britain. But if I'm honest, I think we've also witnessed a collapse of trust. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's coincidental that uh, President Obama came to the United Kingdom, no doubt at the invitation of the Prime Minister, because he's got approval ratings of 75%. Yeah. I can't think of a leading British politician with approval ratings of that order. So in that sense, of course there's a role for politicians. Um. But I think given the nature of the potential coalition that can deliver a remain vote, yeah. there's not going to be a single voice that speaks to every part of that constituency. One of the challenges that we faced in Scotland with a cross-party campaign is it is inherent in being a cross-party campaign that your principal spokespeople hold at times divergent views as to the country's future. I would at times appear in a television studio with Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party. I had a fundamentally different vision of the kind of Scotland I wanted than Ruth Davidson. Yeah there was common ground in saying that we both judge Scotland's best future lay within the United Kingdom. But
0: you were both there in, in, on the telly, in the, on the radio, in the newspapers. One of the interesting things about the, the campaign here is that it has been predominantly Tory and yeah. UKIP voices on both sides. So well, it's been balancing that. Listen, Alan Johnson is about much. to
3: um, tour the country, which was announced just within recent days. Gordon Brown is making a speech today. My hope is that in the coming weeks we will see a range of Labour voices um, speak up and speak out, because at a very deep and fundamental issue for many of us, Europe is a Labour issue, whether that is in relation to paternity rights, whether that is in relation to part-time uh, workers enjoying full-time rights, whether that's in relation to paid holidays. Uh, there are many of us who are very comfortable with defending and arguing for Britain's place within Europe in a way rooted in our commitment to progressive politics and to social democracy and we need to hear those voices in the coming weeks because if the closing stages of the campaign were to appear to be exclusively an argument or a conversation within the Conservative Party then that will be damaging both to turnout and to the prospects for Remain.
0: Maybe we could end with this question of turnout because it seems to me that maybe one of the biggest differences between the Scottish and the European referenda is that in Scotland you'd had years where this was the main topic of conversation and everyone seemed completely energised by it. could still happen in the last few weeks of the European referendum campaign, but you won't have had this kind of national conversation going on about nothing else for for a huge period of time. And one of the uh, big unknowns is the question of turnout. If we had 84.6% turnout mm-hmm. in the European referendum, then um, it would inv- include a lot of people who uh, are in favor of staying in, but without much enthusiasm. But there does seem to be a big enthusiasm gap between the third of the country that are desperate to get out of the European Union and the third that want to remain. How do you see that kind of playing out? Well, the the numbers that you quote at the
3: end of your question evidence the the most important challenge for the remaining campaigners, or indeed for the exit campaigners in the coming weeks, which is how do you speak to that middle third of opinion who probably are not fully aware of all of the issues that many of us who have followed this very closely in recent months have come to engage with, um, and who are there to be spoken to, but also there to be motivated in the closing stages of the campaign. And I suppose one of my concluding observations about Lessons from Scotland is the closing stages of the campaign really matter. Anybody who tells you that this thing is done and dusted with weeks to go didn't experience Scotland in 2014. And in that sense, um, what emerges in terms of the compelling, convincing account of why Britain needs to stay within Europe from the Remain side, or the arguments that the exit side will deploy, um, I think could yet prove decisive. Um, there remains I would argue a rather narrower but real route to victory open to the exit campaigners if the Remain campaigners get the coming weeks wrong, but the opportunity for victory remains clear for the Remainer campaigners if they get the coming weeks of the campaign right. And in that sense, um, I think it's going to be not just an interesting few weeks, but a hugely consequential few weeks for the future of Britain and, future and Britain's future within Europe. So final question, what's your prediction for the result? The experience in Scotland makes me wary of making any prediction this far out because um, my sense is what will determine that outcome will be who prevails in the battle of the frames in the coming weeks. Of course, my hope is that Remain broadens and deepens its support in the coming weeks and I believe that that certainly is open to the Remain side of the argument. But um, I'll, as for the predictions business, I think... Uh, that died a death in the general election of 2015. So did you ever think that you were going to lose in Scotland? Um, I always had the humility to say that uh, the risk was real and that we couldn't be complacent for a second. And I sincerely hope that that is the same psychology informing the remaining campaigners in the remaining days of the campaign.
0: Thank you very much, Douglas. So we'll come back. Maybe we can come and talk again after the campaign and see, uh, see what <laughs> yes. actually happened. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. So that brings this double podcast to an end. We won't have a bookshelf segment this week, but we are putting up links to uh, things which you might want to check out if you're interested in what you've heard so far. There's a link to an article by my colleague Gustav Gressel on the Austrian elections and an event we did with Douglas Alexander where he goes into these issues in greater depth. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes, SoundCloud or Mixcloud. And send us your comments. My email address is mark.leonard.ecfr.eu But for now, from Burkhard Bischoff, Caroline de Reiter, myself, Mark Leonard, and Douglas Alexander, it's goodbye. The editor of our podcast is Katharina Botel-Atsinaro, and our researcher is Ulrike Franke.